you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians. We're going to be looking for the next couple of weeks. I'm not, I, I'm not sure if it's three or four yet, but we're going to be looking at Ephesians 14 through 21. We're going to be talking about this prayer that Paul gives in the midst of his letter. But before we consider the book of Ephesians and Paul and his ministry of prayer, let's ourselves pray to the living God. Join me, please. Father, we thank you for this morning that we could gather together. We thank you for the talent of your saints, the gifts, and the grace that you have bestowed on each of us that we might serve one another in worshiping you. We thank you, Lord, for, um, for all of the Christians who are here who delight in you, who delight in your people, who delight in your goodness and your grace. I pray now as we open the book of Ephesians that you would give us clarity and understanding uh, in, in a rather difficult book that we, through Paul's instruction here, might draw nearer to you, Lord, that we might be more humble before you, that we might have more faith in you, and that we might reflect your goodness and grace and love in this world. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Amen. Now, it's important, whenever you just go hurling about the New Testament, to get an understanding of a book like Ephesians before you just jump into it, so I'm going, to, I'm going to give a, a little slight half-page background on it, but really what this is about is, is, is about the series we did from Titus about creeds and deeds. So there's a little book by uh, John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure most of you have heard of that. He also wrote a little book called All Loves Excelling. And I was reading that while I was going through Titus and realized that there was, there, we would have to keep going on the subject of creeds and deeds. Right? We understand that we have to get our creeds in order and so that our deeds will be sufficient to what we are called to be. Good creeds lead to good deeds. But what's the bridge between the two? What's the bridge between the two? How do you get from, okay, head knowledge, creeds. I understand Jesus is the Son of God. He died for me, the incarnate one. We, I'm, we are new Israel. We, we understand these things. And then, okay, now we have to go and love our wives and raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, love our neighbors as ourselves. But how do you get from the creeds to the deeds? What's the bridge? Now, Paul shows us the bridge in Ephesians, specifically in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. But first, as I said, let's orient ourselves. Now, Ephesians is a peculiar, as peculiar as my trying to say peculiar, letter, because Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He loved the Ephesians, they loved him. When he was going to, down to Jerusalem, he knew that he would be bound and taken into custody. He was there in Ephesus preaching all night and praying with them, and they were weeping together. And then when you open the book of Ephesians, it seems somewhat less friendly than that. It seems a little bit more formal, a little bit more strict. And the reason for that is because it was a circular letter. It was a letter he sent to the church in Ephesus. It was a headquarters. Ephesus was a capital of the region. And it was a letter that was meant to be read in a whole bunch of churches because the churches were spreading very quickly, popping up everywhere in the local towns. And so he sent this letter so that they would have it on hand so that uh, traveling itinerant preachers would have something to discuss when they visited these various churches. That's why this letter sounds a little bit more formal than the passage in Acts where they're all hugging and weeping and know each other by name. Now, the theme of the book is quite simple, straightforward, even though if you've ever read Ephesians 1, uh, it's, it, it contains the longest sentence, if you want to even call what Paul writes sentences. 
uh, in the New Testament, and it's the entire practically first chapter, <laughs> first chapter of letters, like one massive sentence about what God was doing in eternity past, about the mystery of the gospel, and it's very heady stuff. But the whole letter is really about one thing, and that is the unity and reconciliation of heaven and earth through the unity and reconciliation of Jew and Greek. That's what it's about. God is uniting the heavens and the earth by uniting Jew and Greek. He's making a people, he's making a temple that he might dwell in the midst of them, that he might rule the world and the cosmos. That's, that's all the book is about, right? Only six chapters. Paul's pretty, pretty amazing. Now, the book is interesting in another aspect because Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 covers the indicatives, the facts of the gospel. It's all theology, 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 philosophy, philosophy, philosophy. It is essentially the creeds. This is what you ought to believe about the God you serve. This is who he is. This is what he's done for you. This is what he is doing for you. Then you get to Ephesians 4 through 6, and it's the imperatives. It's the shalls and shall nots. It's the deeds that result from faith in the creeds from chapters 1 through 3. That's, the book is easily divided into these two sections. But between the, these sections is Paul, on behalf of his hearers, praying that they may be filled and rooted in the Christ of the creeds, that they would have the strength to fulfill the deeds to glorify him. The bridge between the creeds and the deeds is Paul prostrated in prayer. That is how you get from one to the other. He understands what he's told them uh, about the truth of who God is, and he's about to tell them, therefore, this is how you ought to live. But before he does that, he gets on his knees because he knows unless he goes to the Father on their behalf, there's no hope of their understanding it. There's no hope of their fulfilling it. The bridge between the creeds and the deeds is a Christian prostrated in prayer. That's what we're going to talk about today. Next week, we'll talk about the height and width and length of the love of God, if you can imagine, we'll try to cover that in 45 minutes. But today I want to just tie a bow on this idea that we, we have to get our creeds in order, to get our deeds in order, but we, it's not just us hearing with our ears and then doing with our hands. Paul does not merely exercise his apostolic authority in giving instruction about the gospel and the ethics of the gospel. Paul's responsibility isn't just a ministry of words to brothers and sisters, his ministry is also about the utterances too deep for words on behalf of those Christians in his care. We are people of the word. We're people of the book. We're people of words and books. That's obvious. That's necessary. But all too often, we focus too much on the words that we have for one another and not the words, the groans too deep for words that we are supposed to express to God the Father at his throne of grace. We focus a lot on apologetics. We focus a lot on exposition. We focus a lot on ethics. We focus a lot on what is the gospel, right? We're reformed too, let me tell you. We can just pull out the creeds and confessions all day. I could sit here all day. And what we, we do not focus enough on are those words that are between us and God the Father, right? If, if you have authority, you have responsibility over saints in your care, whether you're a boss, whether you're a parent, whether you're a husband, whether you're just a member of this community, you have a responsibility. You have authority. And how often is that responsibility and authority expressed in prayer for one another? Prayer for the saints under your care. 
parents and husbands, bosses and teachers, anyone in a position of authority, on behalf of you, I bow my knees before the Father, ought to be the basis of your ministry. Right? When you go to your wife, and you're going to now, like, listen, girl, you got to get on this budget. Okay? I'm going to instruct you one more time on how the app works. Now, this is, in my house, actually the opposite of this. Right? It's the other way that this flows. But just go with me here. Right? I know enough about marriage at this point. I, I, I suggest that what you do before you go to your wife again and try to explain the, the Every Dollar app again is to get on your knees before the face of God. Now, if you're a wife, and it, it's the, flip, the flip side is reversed, you've treated him like a respectable guy, even though he's not acting very respectably. Okay? And, and before you go and you try to explain to him how that kind of language isn't appropriate <laughs> in mixed company, before you try to explain that to him again, perhaps what you ought to do is get on your knees before the throne of grace. Our ministry to one another ought to begin with, I bow my knees before the face of God on your behalf. Now, here's what I have to say. And I think if we tried that, we would all get much further. (laughs) I won't embarrass her. There is someone I know who I'm very close to who this is her ministry. She says very little. It turns out, though, she prays for weeks and weeks on end, and lo and behold, her ministry is far more effective than me, who I I get a scheduled hour. And this is something that we all need to consider. It's something we need to consider about ourselves, about our culture as Reformed Christians, about our community. On behalf, on your behalf, I bow my knees before the Father. That is a phrase we need to learn, and it's something that we need to do. Now, meditating on Paul's prayer here, we learn how to pray. There's a reason he's telling us what, what he's praying about. A, a large part of Ephesians, when you really look at it, is just a prayer report where Paul gets a little way. He's like, hey, I've been praying for you. And then he starts talking about what he's praying for the saints. And then he just launches into like 14 verses about the mystery of God before time. And it's like he can't help himself. But really, he's just trying, he's trying really hard to explain to them that he's praying for them and what he's praying about. Now, as we unpack this, as we see how he prays and what he prays and how he's communicating that to them, we ourselves learn a great deal about how to pray. Meditating on Paul's words accomplishes that comprehension and fullness that he is actually seeking. (laughs) That's that's the beautiful part of this. The more you actually sit down and puzzle out what he's doing, you're accomplishing the very thing he's praying would happen to you. Now, English Puritan John Bunyan wrote, Truths are often delivered to us like wheat in full ears. To the end, we should rub them out before we eat them and take pains about them before we have the comfort of them. Now, he's making a comparison here between the words of God, uh, specifically this portion of Ephesians, and food. And I think it's hard for us to understand because uh, the last time you, you ate chicken, you didn't have to kill the chicken, pluck the chicken, gut the chicken, carve up the chicken, right? We, we just get food ready-made. Even if it's healthy food, it generally just comes prepackaged for us. But there is something about having to gather grain and then actually separate it right, from, from the chaff, grind it up, and then you mix it with other things. Like That whole process causes you to consider the food that you're consuming more carefully. Uh, nothing has um, taught me to appreciate a good steak, like having to, I I thought, oh, you know what, I would just buy a large section of beef and cut it into steaks myself. Uh, That was a dumb idea, right? (laughs) Turns out butchers 
are extremely educated and very deft with those knives. I don't know how they come out with, like, how do you take a side of beef and come out with 10 steaks exactly the same size? Right? We don't take a lot of care over our food. And, and what, what John Bunyan is saying is that the word of God is like that. Right? We have podcasts. We have apps. We have Bibles. Right? We got devotionals. And we, we kind of consume our food prepackaged. But how often do we as modern Christians actually sit down and really ponder what we're reading? The healthiest food is not haphazardly processed, but carefully extracted from the earth before it is consumed. Even pizza dough, right? I, my wife was like, oh, let's, let's make pizzas at home. And I was like, oh, how hard could that be? Okay, cool. And then after the first round of having to roll out bread dough for eight people, I was like, just call Pizza Hut already. She's like, I don't, this is a lot of, and we didn't even make the dough. We just bought the dough and had to roll the dough, and I was like, I'm done already. (laughs) It's that funny, it's true. I was like, you should give this pizza dough to someone. Sourdough starter, (laughs) this is also a good one. We tried this recently. Apparently, you have to take care of it like you take care of pets. (laughs) And I mean, I, I was like, listen, you know, the number of pets we've killed, we don't, we're, We don't have time for this, okay? Just go to the store and buy some sourdough already. <laughs> right? And this, this I, I mean, we, we all laugh, right? And it's funny, but it's true. The way we consume food is the way we consume the scriptures. When is the last time we actually sat down with, say, a concordance, and we looked up other places where the words that Paul is using, say, in Ephesians 3, where else he might use those words and phrases? When's the last time we sat down and re- with a pencil between our teeth, as C.S. Lewis says, and really tried to puzzle out the thing that we were reading? But we consume the, the, the word of God, the bread of heaven, like we, like we can consume bread. And, and what, what this causes us, if you really want to understand what Paul is saying here, you cannot just zip through it. Right? I would go home and read Ephesians once a week for the next four weeks while I'm doing this, and maybe we can get a little distant right, in the next four weeks. It's astounding how often Paul begins and has to stop himself several times throughout chapter 3, overcome by attempts to express the inexpressible. He can't even hardly get two, three sentences before he has to stop, and he gets distracted by how glorious the stuff he is he's talking about. He's holding the grains, and he's rubbing them out, and he's fascinated by every one of them. To fully delight in this orchard of God's grace, we must pick the fruit very carefully We must savor, enchanted by the immensity of God's love. That's what we're going to do is slow down and actually consider, when's the last time you actually thought, how wide is God's love? How wide? What's the length of it? How deep does it go? And that, if you're doing that, if you're sitting down and you're thinking about what those words actually mean, yeah, now you're actually rolling out the grain in a proper way. You're making food that will last longer than five minutes. Now, the wise man is like Job from chapter 10 of his book, if you turn with me, Job chapter 10. This, this is um, why the Gospels and the Gospel age and the New Covenant is so amazing. Job said in Job chapter 10, verse 7 and 9, he said, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader 
than the sea. Now, that's what Paul is here talking about. He wants them to understand something that is, that is impossible for us to understand. But what he's doing is he's showing us how. How does one sit down and comprehend these things? Well, partially how you do it is you get on your knees before the face of God and you pray. Right? He's praying for these saints. May they comprehend the incomprehensible. May they go further than Job was ever able to go because why? They have the Holy Spirit. The, the, the whole way he expresses himself here, how he expresses himself, what he's expressing, tells us a great deal about who and what we are as the saints of God. Because unlike Job, we can actually get much further in comprehending these things. How far does his love go? The cross. How deep is his love? Look at the empty tomb. How far can it reach? Well, that was 2,000 years ago, and yet here we are still being converted and saved by the same power with the same Holy Spirit that they were. We are, it's capable, we're capable now by the power of the Holy Spirit because of Christ's ministry to comprehend what is otherwise incomprehensible. And that's what this text is about. He wants them to understand these things. He wants them to, them, these things, these truths, to indwell them, to fill them. Now, a couple of things to notice about the immediate context of Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, before we dive in. Three, uh, chapter 3, verse 14 to 21, resumes the prayer report that Paul has already mentioned. So if you go back to Ephesians, and you go to chapter 2, verse 16, it says there, Paul says in verse 16, and, oh, I'm sorry, 316. Oh, no. I don't know what I wrote here. <laughs> so Paul has already been praying. He's mentioned it. Uh, oh, here it is. Back in chapter 1, verse 15. I'm sorry, everyone. I wrote the wrong thing down. For this reason, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So all the way back in chapter 1, he started his prayer report. And the first thing that he tells them is that I've heard of your faith. I've heard of the, of the religion that the way that you're living out the faith, the way that you believe these things and then are living accordingly. I've heard of these things, and I pray for you, and the prayer is thanksgiving. The first thing he does for these people is give thanks for them. Now that, right, and as we're putting a theology of prayer together, that is where you start, okay? That husband who's not acting respectable, that wife who needs help with the app, you're going to tell them, listen, I bowed my knee before the face of God on your behalf, but when you do the actual kneeling and when you do the actual bowing before the face of God, the first thing you ought to do is give thanks for the person you're praying for. That's what Paul is telling us. The first and most important thing is to give thanks for the person you're praying for, whether they're a friend or an enemy, a loved one or a brother or sister, someone you know um, just needs prayer, you don't even know them. The first thing you ought to do is give thanks for them. Paul does not know all the people he's giving thanks for. He's heard that some new church has sprouted up in some suburb of Ephesus, and he's praying to God on their behalf and thanking God for them, and he doesn't even know them. How much more should we give thanks for those people we're praying for that we do know? Now, Paul, again, in chapter 3, verse 1, he tries to get back to the prayer report again, Right? Because back in chapter 1, verse 15, 16, he got off, the, off track. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, on behalf of you Gentiles, and he never finishes the sentence. He's like, before he can even do that, 
He goes, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's, right? And then he goes off on the stewardship of God's grace for 16 verses or whatever it is. Like he keeps trying to tell them, he keeps trying to tell them, and he keeps getting distracted. So then in verse 14 of chapter 3, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason. Well, what's the reason? And this is why sitting down and rubbing these grains out is so important, because the reason is what? The reason is this, this sidebar here that he just went off on is the reason back. Where, where do we find the reason that he's giving thanks? Now, what Paul is doing by telling them about it, because this is a, something I wanted to mention, because doesn't Jesus tell us to pray and not tell anyone? Okay? He does. He does. But then he also prays to the Father so that we will hear him. So, and this is one of those many times where it requires wisdom to understand how these things work together. Right? Don't, don't make a big deal out of your prayers. Go into a prayer closet and just pray. Now, that's true. And there are times for that. There are also times where you pray for someone and you tell them about it. In John chapter 11, verse 41 to 42, we hear Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, it says, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is revealing things to them by telling them, by allowing them to hear him pray. So he's not in a prayer closet keeping this secret. He's making a spectacle out of his prayer. Now, should we always make a spectacle out of our prayer? No, that's not what I'm saying. But, but sometimes we, we, we make prayer too private. Like how many, how, how many times have you been standing there talking to a Christian and you're like, oh, we'll pray for you, right? Because why, why is it that you don't just pray for him right then, right? What is it about us where we say we're going to do something we're not really going to do? But why do we feel like we have to go away from the person that we're talking to and pray for them somewhere other than where they are? It's awkward, though. I'll tell you right now, it's so funny because when I became the pastor of the church, I started to have you know, meetings online with other pastors. And, and all of the older ones, to a man, talk to me for an hour via Zoom and then say, okay, well, let's pray about everything we just talked about. And I'm like, man, this is, why is this so awkward? Or now I talk to these candidates, and, and one of them I wanted to hire simply because he did this. At the end of our talking for two hours, he said, well, would you pray for me and my family? I was like, oh, that was, that's actually pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty good idea. Instead of waiting later to think of you, why not pray for you right now? We make prayer too private of, of, of a thing. Now, like Jesus, Paul wants his hearers to know not only that he prays for them, but to know the content of the prayers themselves. So this section of Ephesians is a mix of prayer and petition, praise and intercession, thanksgiving and instruction. Paul is demonstrating the behavior that he wants them to imitate because he tells them again and again. In Ephesians 6.18, he's going to tell them to pray always. Philippians 4.6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. 1 Timothy 2, first of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made for all people. He's always telling people to pray. And, and if you're responsible for others, you don't just tell people to do things. You demonstrate the behavior that you want them to do. Right? You want, you want the kids to wash the dishes a certain way? Show them. 
You want the kids to pray a certain way? Show them. You want the kids to do math a certain way? What do you have to do? You have to show them, right? You don't just hand a kid an algebra book and say, good luck with that. I mean, you give the algebra book to your wife. (laughs) And she sits down with them because if you actually want them to actually learn it. And she has to actually show them, right? You start with math facts. you You have to show them what you're doing. Everything is like this, even prayer. We make prayer too private of an event. And one of the things we do, we have these books of of prayers written based on scripture. And when our kids hit about eight or nine, we give them these books. And and I tell them, please don't pray just yet all by yourself. Say these prayers. Learn to pray from people who have already been praying. Right? And then it doesn't take long at, at the dinner table. It's not just me and my wife who pray. We have everybody start praying. When people come over to our house, we have the kids also pray because praying when there's a large group of Christians is harder when it's a small group of Christians. If you want people to do the thing you're instructing them to do, you have to show them. Prayer is no different. Now, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21 is a sort of prayer report and prayer mixed together. Now, to go back to this, what, you know, he says, for this reason I give thanks. Well, what, what is, or for this reason I bow the knee, what is he talking about? Well, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2 through 13 is what they call a digression. As I said, he starts to tell them what he's praying about, and then he, he, he kind of digresses for a little while. It's an aside, okay? And, and really how you ought to read this is actually starting in chapter 2, verse 11. If you go to 2 chapter 2, verse 11, and you skip a portion of the third chapter, you actually find out why, what, what it is that he, he's, he, why he's going, the reason that he's praying, okay? So I'm going to go back, and I'm going to read now, finally, so, some verses from Ephesians, but I'm going to read a large section and skip some stuff, because it, it, this is how context works. He has something in mind, he gets distracted for a minute, and he comes back to it, and he gets back on task, but what is it that's on his mind? So we go back to chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the the two and so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, dot, 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 skip down to verse 14. For this reason, he says again. Well, what reason? The reason he just described. 
the unity and the peace and the oneness and the, in the one structure, one family, one body. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So why is he praying for them? He's praying for them that they would know this truth that he's telling them. You who were far off are now close. You who were not a people are now a people. You who were estranged and the circumcision party say still is estranged are not. You are now here. There is now one people, one building, one family, one household, all unified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And for this reason, I pray that you would understand these things. And it's for their confidence, it's for their assurance, it's for their comfort in this world that he prays that they would comprehend the thing that he's telling them. We rely far too much on our ability to explain. You can tell facts all day long. It is Christ himself and Christ only who opens the heart to receive. And and what have we just covered all along through this theology of Israel. Presumption. Presumption, presumption, presumption. Paul can water all day long. Apollos can come along and fertilize the seeds as much as he likes, but unless God gives the growth, there is no hope. There's no chance. And so Paul does not, Paul, right? Paul the apostle, Paul who people were touching the ro- like the hem of his robe and like being healed like Jesus, this apostle realizes that unless he goes on his knees to the Father, these Gentiles will not know who they are. They will not comprehend what's been done for them. They will not be filled with the fullness of God. They will still feel empty like when they were Gentiles. This is the reason he prays. Is this the reason that we pray? Right? We, we, right? You need new tires on the truck, and that's expensive. That's a reason to pray, and I'm not saying it's not. It is. Right? Your kid's struggling in math. You really want them to get a good grade. That's a reason to pray. Sure, totally. Your back hurts a little bit, and you really don't want it to. That's a reason to pray. I have no problem with that. But how often especially us, the Reformed, especially us who spend so much time instructing and teaching and speaking about these things, how often do we get down on our knees before the face of the Father and and the reason we're praying is that the people around us would comprehend who and what they are, what has been done for them. That is the bridge between creeds and deeds. This is the responsibility. This is authority. He says, bowing the knee. And this is a sign of homage, obviously, a sign of humility. Men do it before earthly rulers, Genesis 41, 43. They do it before idols, even, Romans eleven four. They do it before the living God, or Romans 14, 11, Philippians 2, 10. We bow the knee before those things we honor and respect. 
Now, we're modern Americans. I know this. Um, I was subbing at Providence this week, and I was talking to the students, and somebody asked if anyone had ever gotten up and walked out in the middle of the service. Teenagers ask really weird questions. I said, yeah, one time it was when I was preaching. Another time it's because um, whoever was doing the confession said, let's bow. And the guy in the back who's wearing a hat was like, no thanks, and they left. Because bat, like prostrating yourself in prayers, I mean, we're Americans, right? We stand with Texas. We don't kneel before anyone. And, and there's this modern, independent, egalitarian way that we think where we, 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 we've lost the posture of prayer. And one of the reasons we bow at the beginning of our service is to remind people that we're here worshiping with our bodies and not just our mouths and with our minds. And, and it's, uh, it's funny how this works because... I, I, I myself recently started pre- praying through the Psalms in this very systematic way. And, and I thought, you know, after like four or five days of this, I was like, I wonder if I should get on my knees for this. I was like, ah, it's been a while. Maybe I'll do it. It'll be nice. It'll be like this nice little show of humility once. And then I did it, and I've been doing it ever since. And I realized, you know, it's actually, it's not even the words themselves. It's not the concept even of prayer. It's the posture that matters. Because we think it's just what, with our minds, right? We sit on our couch, our comfortable couch, bow our head maybe a little bit, right? Not too much because of the neck. But when is the last time you like laid down on your face like a cross like Luther does <laughs> in that Luther movie they make of him? Whenever the monks in the Middle Ages prayed, I mean, they would literally lie on the floor in the shape of a cross. And, and we hear that and we're like, come on, guys, you monks. What do you know about holiness, you weirdos? Because we don't prostrate ourselves. That's just not something we do. But if anyone, right, is, is, is perhaps too, too dignified to get on his knees, right? Here's Paul, beaten up all these times, right? All these the shipwrecks, all this stuff that he has to go through. If I saw the man trying to, with his rickety knees, try to kneel down, I'd probably try to prevent him. But he doesn't think it's beneath him. So bowing the knee, this is, so, so it's not just enough that you want to pray, it's not enough that you want to give thanks, it's the posture that you take when you're doing this matters. We're not egalitarians. Okay? God cares about the world. Right? I mean, the incarnation shows that matter matters to him. Right? He, he, was, he was willing to come down, and he didn't deny himself any aspect of the humility of being a human. And so why, why are we too good for these kinds of things? So next, I want to talk about this, uh, verse 15, because I use an ESV, and I don't like the way they've translated this. this. I'm not going to get into this transcript thing now. But the King James Version makes it much clearer. In verse 15, it should read, the whole family in heaven on earth. He's not saying every family in the world, regardless of their status as Christians. He's talking about the household of God. He's saying the whole family... In heaven and on earth together, those Christians who are alive and those Christians who have passed on, who are with the Christ now in the heavens, all of them share the same last name. He names this family. And, and I don't like that the ESV makes it seem like this sort of universalism thing here. The whole structure is what he right? This is why I read the whole long passage. He was talking about the whole structure. He uses the same terminology here. He says the whole family. So the whole structure, which is all believers... And the whole family is the same group. It's, it's the same thing that he's talking about. Okay, he's not talking about universalism. 
Paul's point is that the new family constituted in Christ from every nation, both Jews and Gentiles, those alive on earth and those departed souls in heaven with Christ, all receive their most significant patronymic, their identity, their surname, from the God and Father of all who is over all and through all, Ephesians 4, 6. Okay, so some people's last name is Johnson because at some point when you were a peasant, you didn't really have a last name, so they're like, oh, you're Ann John's son, right? You're the descendant of John, so we're going to call you John's son, Eric's son. Well, our last names are God's son. Right? That's what he's talking about here. He's named the family. If you go, this is also a reference back to Genesis 1 in verse 5 of Genesis 1, 8 of Genesis 1, verse 10 of Genesis 1, right? God calls the light. He calls the oceans. He gives names to things because he, he's laying claim and power and authority over them. Right? So, so here, naming, calling is what is being what, what Paul is thinking of. And so there is a group of people, both Jews and Gentiles, that God has called, that he has named, that he has identified as his. And this reason that these people would know who they are as this special group, that is the reason that Paul palaces his knee before the Father. John Calvin wrote, There is but one family which ought to be reckoned both in heaven and on earth, both among angels and among men, if we belong to the body of Christ. For outside of him there is nothing but dispersion. The people of God are the people of God. The family of God is the family of God. I don't care if you go by other taglines like Lutherans or Episcopalians or Catholics or whatever else you use to signify yourself. We are all of us, those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from whatever tribe and tongue, whatever nation in this world, we are one people together. Now, verse 16 mentions the riches of his glory and power. And, you know, each, each of this could be broken down. He talks about God's wealth. He talks about God's glory. He talks about God's power through this whole letter. Right? And let, let me just, I'm not going to read all of these. I thought about that, but I'm running out of time already. He talks about God's wealth, right, the riches of his glory and power. He talks about God's riches in chapter 1, verse 7, 18, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 8. He talks about God's glory, chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 1, verse 17 through 18. He talks about God's power. This, these are the themes that he's been talking about. The riches of his glory with power. This is what he wants you to know. He's talking about God's wealth. He's talking about God's glory. He's talking about God's power. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So there is a source, and what he wants for you is to reflect the source. If this is the strength from which you're drawing from, how strong can you be? If this is the wealth from which you are drawing from, how wealthy are you? If this is the glory from which we are receiving glory, how glorious ought we to be? He wants the product, <laughs> the thing that God is making, to reflect the one who's making it. The source ought to tell us something about how we ought to be living this life. Now, you hear this, and you're like, what? What do you mean his glory is my glory? His power is my... And this is why he's praying this prayer. Because even us who believe these things hear these things, and we marvel at them, and, we re and it's not that we are unbelievers, but we have a hard time really believing it, don't we? All the power of the God who made the cosmos 
that power is my power? He owns everything, and all of that wealth is my wealth? Yeah, no wonder, right? How, we ought to maybe get on our knees a little more often and pray for one another that we would truly understand these, that we would comprehend them, that we would be filled with them, because that is the point. It's not a trick. It's not like God the Father says, hey, come and live in my house, and then you go and you live in his house, and it's decrepit, and you're hungry, and there's no glory, and it's cold, it's drafted, right? No, when he says, come and live in my house, there is a glory, there is a power, there is a majesty. There, all that is his is ours. And, and then we look at our lives and we think, no, that's not true. <laughs> and then we go to Paul and Paul gets on his knees and he says, please, let them understand these things. Let them comprehend these things. Let them be filled with these things that are theirs because you are a gracious and kind God. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, back there he said, Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Right? This, this is a summary of what he's praying for them. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is, this is your inheritance. This is your identity. This is who you are. And it's not enough just to hear these things. If we don't pray that God opens our hearts to receive them, they do us no good just to repeat them like mantras to one another. Now, Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, I already did that. Oh, sorry. So the riches of God's glory is strength for the weak the health for the sick, the hope for the downtrodden, the life for those who live in the shadow of death, light in the darkness, riches for the poor. That's what his grace is. It is all those things you have, don't have and are not. The riches of God's glory is the immeasurable wealth of the faithful. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, is that true? How are we going to receive that unless we pray that God opens our hearts and our minds to receive it? Because, I, I mean, we could come in here, Joel, Jared, and I, we could take turns. We could come in here every week for the next five years and just tell you this. Hey, guys, listen. He became poor that you might become rich. Go and be filled. And that sounds great. That seems like you can make a whole ministry out of that. But unless we get on one another, right, unless God gives the growth, unless God opens the heart, and, and, and he's not going to do it unless you ask him. He's waiting for you to ask him. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much, it says in James. Now, Paul prays that God powerfully strengthen his audience, that our strength would equal the source, that our might would represent the mighty one who is the source of our might. Paul prays, may the riches of God's glory strengthen you. May the riches of God's glory dwell within you. Thus, will you be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being? That's what it means. Now, the apostles always equate the power of God with the Holy Spirit. 
because the Holy Spirit is the delivery system. The Holy Spirit is the conduit between ourselves and God. I know that we think it's us. We think it's us. We think, you know, you know what the conduit of God's grace is? Me. You know what the conduit of God's love is? Me. You know what the conduit of God's self-revelation is? Me. That's why I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell people the truth. I'm going to tell them the gospel. I'm going to do all the things that God wants me to do, and it's me. I'm going to go and I'm going to do all of these things. Now, is that true or not true? Okay, but what's missing in that equation? I, I, how many of you... How many of you have tried and tried and tried to overcome some temptation, some besetting sin, and you say, okay, tomorrow it's, I'm really going to give the old college try. And then you get to that point where you say, listen, I completely surrender to you, God, because I have no control or power over this at all, and suddenly that change that's eluded you. Right? There, there is a mediator of the covenant. It's not you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the conduit of, from, from him at the right hand of power to you and to everyone that you know is the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is to give life, is to enlighten. Now, I'm going to, right? <laughs> this is what we need to keep before us. It's not enough for us just to tell people. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Romans 1.4, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? Because he knew there was a time to stop talking and to kneel before the Father and to pray to the only one who could do anything about it. Even Paul knew when to shut up. Even Paul knew when to stop talking. Even Paul knew when he had taken it as far as he was going to take it. And unless the Lord builds the house, his labor is in vain. Unless the, the Lord opens the heavens and pours down the rain, no farmer in this world can do anything about raising a crop. He knew when it was time to stop talking. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul prays that God would renew the inner man in the image of Christ, that the outer man would reflect the glory of God's wealth like Moses' face shone with God's glory from the tent of meeting, that the inner new man would grow in life and strength even as the old man in Adam withers and dies. Paul prays that the new man matures and continues to grow up strong, and this inner strength is connected directly to the Lord Jesus dwelling in the believer's heart. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, rooted and grounded in love. There's only one ladder into heaven. 
right? We tried to build a tower. How did that go? Jacob, one of the great patriarchs, he knew God. God knew him. God drew near to him. And yet all he could do was dream about a ladder. And we have, we're always trying to build up, build up, build up. And what the gospel tells us is that he created a ladder coming the other direction. Right? Because, I mean, when they built the Tower of Babel, what, it's so funny because they built this huge tower, so magnificent, it says God came down to see it. And we're going to go on and we're going to talk about this when we talk about the length and width of God's love. His reach is longer than ours. He was like, look at the little kids down there running around, stacking up milk crates, trying to reach the highest heavens. And, and they built a ladder down to us. And, and so there is a mediator. There is a conduit. It's not us. We are recipients. All we do is, is glow with the glory that comes from seeing him face to face like Moses in the tent of meeting. Paul already told them that the church is a new spiritual temple being indwelt by God through his spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, he says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul's telling his hearers that he prays that the Lord would give them strength in their inner man, and that strength is the Lord Jesus himself, because the heart is a well. It's a life well. It's a word well. It's a fruit well. This is what Jesus told us, right? From the heart, the words in the mouth flow forth, right? From, from the heart, the action comes. From the heart, the, the words come. And so this is a well. And what, what Paul is telling us is that if we, he, he wants God to fill our hearts with himself so that what pours out of us is him, not us. His grace, his love, his forgiveness, his goodness God is love, and so Paul is praying that his hearers would be filled with love, with God himself. Paul doesn't just want Christ in our heads or in our hands. After expounding the wonderful truths of the gospel in chapters 1 to 2, Paul tells his readers that Paul wants Christ to dwell in their hearts. The second person of the Trinity, the incarnate word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father, is not limited by his flesh. He remains where he is and yet dwells in your hearts because that's the kind of, of tunnel, that's the kind of ladder that he's built. Because how many of you ever really thought, like, you know what, he's got a body now, so he really can't dwell in the supper with us. He can't dwell in my heart because he, he, it would somehow blow apart his body. But does that flesh that he carry? Right? He now has two natures. Does that limit him somehow? Paul doesn't just want us to hear the gospel. He wants us to experience the gospel. He wants us to know that this God that we serve is not limited by anything. And he is not so far off that we have to try to build some way back to him. And it's not enough simply for us to hear these things. He has to come and make his home in our hearts and in our minds in order for us to receive, in order for us to become what we are called to be. And it's interesting because the Spirit's presence in us is Christ's presence in us, presence in us, is the Father's presence in us. This is why when he's talking fullness here, what he means by this word is something that's actually hard to imagine. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ 
does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that would be the Father, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit of Christ is the spirit and the spirit of the Father. And is that not fullness itself? Now, how do we comprehend that this God dwells inside of us? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit live here. This is now the temple. Here, right? And what used to be a goodwill, all of us sitting here together, this is the temple that that God dwells in? Now, to be rooted and grounded in love conveys an agricultural and architectural metaphor. That's that's what he was talking about back in chapter 2. You're God's building. You're God's field. We we looked at it in Revelation, right? The throne of God has now become a living stream that flows forth, and there's trees there, and the fruit of those trees is for the healing of the nations. We are trying to comprehend who we are in Christ. What's flowing out of us is not just life for us, but life for the world. You, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then if we turn to 1 Corinthians... Chapter 3, verse 6 and 9, 6 through 9, it says what? It says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now what, think of how all of this works together. Does God want you to go and do deeds equal to the creeds that he's taught you? Yes. Well, what are the creeds? That the eternal one the eternal triune God who, who doesn't fit into the cosmos he created fits somehow in your heart. And he's working on you, and through you he's working on others. And all of this is almost impossible for us to comprehend the reality of it. right? What does this have to do with me pouring Cheerios on Tuesday morning? What does this have to do with that stupid task I have to do at work that I hate doing but my boss wants me to do and i got to do it? And what does this have to do with the triune God dwelling in my heart? Turning from the creeds in chapter 1 through 3, the, individu- the indicatives, the facts, the head knowledge, you turn from those to the deeds of chapter 4 through 6, the imperatives, the thou shalls and shall nots. At the heart of the letter is, is prayer for the heart of those in Paul's care. At the center of everything is a prayer on, that Paul is giving for the heart of those people in his care. Now, are you in one another's care? Do you have children? Do you have a spouse? You have brothers and sisters. Who is in your care? What is at the heart of your ministry? Is it just simply words? Is it just simply actions? Or is it you on your face before the face of God, praying that those around you, those in your care, would comprehend these incomprehensible things? At the center of the epistle is Paul on his knees before the throne of grace, asking God to give the saints the heart to receive God's love. That's a ministry. 
In order to be grounded in the heady theology of chapters 1 through 3, to do the hard work of chapters 4 through 6, the believer needs strength in the inner being that only God can give. And that strength is the love of God. Now, parents, is there a disconnect between your instruction and your child's obedience? Yes. Uh, That's a rhetorical question, but let me just answer it for you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Now, husbands, are you seeing a growth in beauty and security in your wives equal to the expressions of love and provision that you're providing? See, I mean, do you feel like, you know, I can't provide any more? I can't say any more how much I love you, and yet you seem so insecure. Ladies, are your men growing in strength and respectability equal to your expressions of respect and gratitude for the responsibility they take for you? You're like, I don't know what else to do with this guy. I don't know how many times I told him not to put the socks on the bathroom floor. I don't know how many times I told him that salad is perfectly legitimate as an entree. Now, there is a bridge between the words of our mouth and the actions of our hands, and it is us prostrate in prayer, not just for ourselves. He's not praying for himself. He's praying for the people in his care. Because your words are limited, and and, and I know you know that, but this is why we have to go through this. We don't really know it, do we? We think we're going to just be able to use logic and explain it and be like, okay, listen, I've talked, I've, I've said this, kids, how many times, right? Wife, I mean, I don't know how much more logical or reasonable I could be. I could get a whiteboard, right? Husband, how many times do I have to tell you? You see the insecurities. You see the fears. You see all the things going on in one another's lives. There is a limit to what your words can accomplish. There is no limit to what God, by his spirit, can accomplish in one another, in you and in the person sitting next to you. There is no limit to what he can accomplish. There is a limit to what you can do. And, and the faster we learn this, the more we build our lives on it, the more prayerful we will be, and the more he will accomplish. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Paul. I thank you, Lord God, for the epistle to the Ephesians. I pray that as we open these words, Lord, and that we ponder uh, each grain, that you would give us a heart to receive the love of Christ Jesus, that we would be renewed in our spirit, that we, um, Lord God, would be, be humble and prostrate before you, that our ministry would not consist merely of words to one another, but words on behalf of one another before your throne of grace. We thank you and we praise you for hearing us and being here with us. In Jesus' name we pray and amen.